Revelation 3, 1-6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would uh, that you, you would really speak to us tonight as we gather as your people. Uh, as we've just heard, uh, we pray that uh, your word would, would come home to our hearts by the power of your Spirit, uh, bringing new spiritual life even this day. For Christ's glory we pray. Amen. Uh, I heard a story the other day about a little boy who used to go along to church with his father. And uh, on one particular Sunday, he sat down next to his dad. And as usual, the service uh, was incredibly boring. But he could predict uh, absolutely everything that was going to happen before it happened. Uh, and so as the sermon got started, uh, at around the, about this point, uh, he just fell asleep. Uh, eventually, he was kind of startled awake by the final song. And as he moved towards the door with his dad, he saw a plaque on a wall. Uh, it was kind of a list of, of gold names on, on a wooden board. Uh, so he said to his dad, Dad, dad what, what's that plaque all about? Uh, to which his dad proudly said, Son, it's a list of all the people who have died in the services. <laughs> to which his son innocently said, Dad, uh, said, dad uh, which service was it? Was it the morning or the evening one? Uh, maybe, maybe some of you resonate with that. You've been involved with churches, uh, not ours, of course, uh, but they're, they're dull, uh, they're tedious, they're lifeless, they're boring. It's kind of a real achievement to get through the service uh, without dying. Uh, the church in Sardis is a bit like that. It's a dead church. Uh, well, what do we know about Sardis, the, the city of Sardis? Uh, Sardis is about 45 kilometres south of Thyatira. That's where we were last week. Uh, and today, Sardis still exists. Uh, it's a very small Turkish village called Sart. Uh, but back in its heyday, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the province of Asia. It was the capital city of its particular part of Asia, the, the province of Lydia. And uh, it was very, it was extremely wealthy uh, because it was right at the intersection of five major trade routes. Uh, in particular, uh, it was the centre of both the carpet and wool industries, which is why Christ reference, references clothes in this letter. Uh, so Sardis had, had this glorious reputation, a wonderful past. It really was like a playground for the rich and famous. They loved Sardis. But it didn't last. 
right? Through complacency, through war, through, through natural disaster. Right? There was an earthquake in Sardis in 17 AD. Through all those things, Sardis lost its glory. Sardis was ruined. And it's interesting that the, the, the Roman goddess of Sardis uh, was uh, named Sibylla. Right? She's the, the great mother of the gods, the one who's supposed to be the giver of life, the one who is supposed to be able to give new life to Sardis. But she couldn't. And what we see in this letter is that the church in Sardis is just like its city. Uh, we don't really know where this church came from. We're not kind of told in the Bible. There's not much history. But we do know that it had an illustrious past. Right? You see it there. It had a, a great reputation. People knew about the church in Sardis. But really, uh, of course, it doesn't matter what other people think of your church. It's Christ's opinion that matters. And he says, yes, of course, you've got a reputation for being alive. But actually, you're dead. So here we've really got a, a dead city. With a dead church. So Christ reveals himself to this church. He, he highlights particular characteristics of who he is. I had a look in the middle of verse 1. Christ says, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So, so imagine for a moment that uh, I got a, a group of you guys together and I said to you, guys, uh, there's, there's, there's this church that's dead in Sardis. Uh, you have a brainstorming session. Come up with what you think this church needs to do. Like maybe they need a, a new catchy vision statement, a new kind of way of, uh, of structuring up ministry. Uh, maybe they, they need some new programs, some new principles. Uh, what, what, what would you say to this church? What do they need for new spiritual life? Christ knows exactly what they need. They need a, a fresh vision of him. They need to see him more clearly. They need a, a renewed vision, a compelling vision of him, their, their glorious king. So Christ reveals himself to the church in two ways. First, uh, as the one who holds, who, who possesses uh, the seven spirits of God. Uh, if you've been with us as we go through Revelation, you'll know that the number seven there is symbolic. But it symbolizes the fullness of God's spirit, the, the whole deal, the, the completeness of God's spirit. And that's exactly what this church needs, isn't it? They need Christ to, to pour out the life-giving power of his spirit on their church. A second, Christ reveals himself as the one holding the seven stars. And once again, we know from chapter 1, verse 20, that these seven stars are the seven pastors of these seven churches that these letters are going to, the leaders of the churches. So joining the dots, right? the point is that, that what this church needs is leaders, leaders who are truly empowered by God's Spirit, filled with God's Spirit. Right? Because the church is not primarily a building or an organization. It's a spiritual organism, a living organism. It needs leaders who are alive, who have real spiritual life in them. If you read Ephesians 4, you'll see that the church is the body of Christ. Every part. Christ is ascended on high. He's poured out his spirit. Every part is filled with the spirit that the church should live and move and breathe like a body. 1 Peter 2, you see that the church is the, is the living temple of Christ. Right? Temple, that sounds quite static, kind of stones. But Peter says that every stone, they're, they're living stones, enlivened and empowered by God's Spirit. 
So this church in Sardis needs a compelling vision of Christ as the one who's able to pour out his spirit on their church and in particular on their leaders. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the saying that uh, if you point one finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Uh, That's relevant here as as we look at this letter because I think that, that many of us, including myself, can complain that our church uh, isn't alive enough. It's easy to do that about your church. And maybe you think it's dull, it's boring, it's, it's rigid, right? And that might be true sometimes. But in the end, our whole church, like all churches, is made up of individuals. Right? People like you. So if there's a problem in, in, in our church, if there's kind of some kind of deadness in our church, let's be slow to point the finger at others and quick to take a look at ourselves. Uh, Is there any spiritual deadness in your life? In what way? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, keep being filled with the Spirit. Kind of uh, allow the Spirit more and more to to control, uh, to to lead uh, every part of your life. I wonder if that's happening in your life. I wonder if you can see the fruit of the Spirit in your character. Are you using the gifts that the Spirit's given you? Now, I know those questions are hard to answer. How do you kind of measure the work of the Spirit? It's hard to kind of quantify. But I do think we've got to ask them. We've got to pray about them. In what ways might there be spiritual deadness in your life? I actually think we're going okay as a church. I'm not going to kind of big stick today that there's plenty of signs that our church is alive, it's growing, it's healthy. So I'm not going to take the approach that that one pastor took uh, who actually told his church uh, that he thought they were dead. I got up on a Sunday, he said that to them, you're dead, and he said, come back tonight uh, because tonight I'll be leading the funeral service for our church. And so you can imagine uh, that uh, the church was so shocked that that night they had their biggest attendance for years. Everyone kind of flocked out. And when they all turned up, uh, they, they came in the, in the back doors of the church and they saw that there was actually a coffin down the front, a kind of a literal casket up the front. And uh, the service began. The, the pastor gave his sermon. And at the end of the service, he said, Now, look, I know that, that some of you still aren't convinced that our church is dead. Like maybe the person next to you is dead, but not you. Okay, so... Uh, To convince you, what I want you to do is come up, file past this casket one by one uh, to see the remains of our church. Of course, what had the pastor done? The pastor had put a mirror in the bottom of the casket. So every every person who filed past, uh, kind of expecting to see a corpse, uh, saw themselves. The point is that the church is made up of individuals. Right? People like you and me. So if you want our church to be alive, to, to be healthy, to be growing, uh, I think you've got to start with yourself. Be a Christian who's growing, who's taking the, your own spiritual growth seriously. Be a Christian who, who's really seeking to bear, to put to death sin and, and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Be a Christian who's willing to use the gifts of the Spirit uh, that God has given you for for the good of our whole church, the spiritual life of our church. And that leads to Christ's first criticism of this church. Uh, Notice, right, we've had this structure, all these C's. Normally there's compliments, no compliments for Sardis. Straight to criticisms. Christ says, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, uh, but you're dead. 
first criticism. Uh, here at Darabin Prezi, if you've been around for a bit, uh, you'll know that we sometimes talk about our six M's, right? six things that we're passionate about, uh, mission, magnification, membership, maturity, ministry, and mercy. Uh, today, I, I want to introduce you to some other M's, hopefully not confusing, this, you can let these drift out your uh, brain after the sermon, right? Uh, but five M's that describe uh, the typical life cycle of a church, or, or really any organisation, but let's think with churches in mind. Five M's. The first M uh, is that you've got a man. Right? It could be a woman, uh, but uh, kind of man works better with the alliteration, so I'm going with man. Uh, you've got a man, uh, and this man uh, has a compelling vision. Right? He wants to start something new. I think kind of Martin Luther with the Reformation, or, or Steve Jobs with Apple, or, or Jesus Christ with the church. Right? A man with a compelling vision. And if that man, of course, succeeds in his leadership, more and more people will get on board with his vision. So over time, it feels like they're really part of something, right? It's alive, it's dynamic, it's growing, it's purposeful. Uh, The man has become a movement. Second M, man has become a movement. Uh, But when movements get big enough, uh, they've got to start organising things. Uh, they've got to formalise leadership and develop constitutions. They've got to write policies and processes and procedures. Right. So over time, uh, the once dynamic movement uh, can become a not-so-well-oiled machine. Third M. Uh, at that point, uh, almost all the energy goes into maintaining the machine. Uh, people get caught up in committees, uh, in, in all sorts of meetings, uh, they, and uh, they, over time... Uh, they almost forget about the movement days. Uh, They reminisce about them. Uh, They share stories. They put up photos. They have honour boards. They preserve buildings. They write their history. Uh, But all those things become like exhibits uh, because their church has become a bit like a museum. The machine has become a museum. And don't even think about touching those exhibits or changing them. In a museum church, all change typically is viewed with suspicion, even anger. Because what museum churches want are curators, people who maintain the museum, not leaders. The compelling visionary that started the museum church, uh, no place for him in the museum church. So typically, we leave museum churches alone, and eventually they become morgues, fifth M. It's really sad, isn't it? It's happening all over Australia, churches that that are really just waiting for the people in them to die, so then the church will die. It's like a morgue. Now, I don't know how much of that process happened in Sardis. But I do know uh, that this church was planted with the message about the man, Jesus Christ. It started with the man. And it seems to have become something of a movement. Right? It had a great reputation. People knew about the church in Sardis. But now, Christ says it's like a morgue. A dead church full of dead Christians. That's pretty stinging. That that's his first criticism. His second criticism in verse 2 is, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. 
And notice that there's still deeds in the church, right? That there's some signs of life. But Christ says their deeds are missing something. They're unfinished. Primarily, they're missing the power of God's Spirit. Right, so Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that, uh, that, that, that people, uh, the, he, so Paul says, he talks about people uh, who have the form of godliness, the appearance of godliness, uh, but there's no real power. God's spirit's not present in their lives. It's all a show. And that's what's happening in Sardis. It's all a show that their works are unfinished. Two big criticisms. Uh, but praise God, even the church, uh, even a church that's as dead as Sardis uh, can be revived. Uh, look at Christ's command in verse 2. Wake up, he says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Verse 3, he says, Remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Well, one commentator says that we started this letter uh, in, as a deathbed scene, uh, but now we've moved into the emergency room. Right? Some of you work in emergency rooms, you know it better than me. Right? But, but here you've got this church that is almost dead. Right? That they're kind of losing consciousness. And so Christ says, wake up! Wake up! That they're weak, they're fragile, their life is ebbing away. So Christ says, strengthen what remains. Like the, the fire that's about to go out, you've got to fan it into flame, he's saying. Uh, remember, I said earlier that the city of Sardis had been conquered a couple of times in war, uh, largely uh, because of complacency. Right? The city sat on top of a really big hill, uh, and so they actually thought that they would never be conquered. They couldn't be conquered. Uh, so they didn't even really guard themselves properly. And likewise, the greatest issue for this church in Sardis uh, was spiritual complacency. You see, they're a church that has fallen asleep. They haven't been on guard. They haven't been holding fast. They haven't been reminding each other of the great truths of the faith and to hang on to those. As a Christ saying to them, it's time to wake up, to repent, to turn away from complacency. Oh, I suspect that most of us know that when you first become a Christian, you have to repent. Whether that's how it works, you've got to turn away from the life where uh, you lived as if you were king, where you were in control, your hands on the wheel. Uh, you turn towards the life where Christ is in control, where Christ is king. But that's repentance, right? I think we get that when you first become a Christian. Uh, but this year, some of you might know this, this year is 500 years since the start of the Protestant Reformation. Right? In 1517, Martin Luther. And nailed 95 uh, theses, not feces. They didn't nail feces to the wall of the church, but theses, that's T-H, uh, to the wall of the, uh, the, the door of the church in Wittenberg. Uh, and it kind of kicked off the Reformation. Right? The, the first of those uh, was uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers uh, should be repentance. You get that, right? Repentance is, it's not just something you do when you first become a Christian. You repent and believe in Jesus. Yes, you should do that. But Martin Luther is saying it should be something that's part of your entire life as a Christian. Because every day you've got to be turning away from sin and putting your trust in Christ. And that's what Sardis had failed to do. They'd fallen asleep spiritually. They'd gotten complacent about that sort of thing. And Christ saying you have to start doing that. And that's what we have to do, like not just as individuals, but as a church. 
Oh, I'm not saying I'm not talking about anything in particular, but I am saying that we have to be really conscious, really uh, alert to where we're falling short as a church, to things that we're neglecting, where we're being complacent about. And once we're aware of those things, we shouldn't just get defensive or try to justify them. I'm sure we, we know we're not perfect as a church, right? Instead, uh, there might be a place for us as a church to confess our sins and repent. That should be a part of, it, of our corporate life as a church. And if we don't do that, there's a warning. And in verse 3, Christ's warning to the church in Sardis. He says, But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Uh, my parents are here today, they'll remember this. Uh, soon after I got my driving licence, I got a 1986 VL Commodore. Right, perfect car for a P-plater. Uh, maxim, maximum chance of being pulled over for a breathalyzer because uh, you know, you're driving a VL. But anyway, one of the things I had in that car uh, was a steering lock. I don't know if people still have those things these days. You remember those things? Uh, if you were alert, if you remembered, uh, you parked the car, you'd put the steering lock on uh, because you're anticipating that thieves might come along at any minute, you see. That, that's the picture here. But Sardis has to be alert. They have to be, wake up. They have to repent. Because if they don't, Christ will come to them like a thief in judgment. When they least expect, the time where they don't have the steering lock on, he'll be there. So wake up, be ready. That's Christ's command to the church. In verses 4 to 6, we have his commitment. Let me read that. He says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. I might have given the impression before that those M's, the life cycle of a church, that's somehow inevitable. But it's not, is it? Sometimes it's possible for a dead church to, to be revived, to, to come alive again. That, that's Christ's hope here. Especially where there's a few people who've remained faithful to Christ, who, who haven't soiled their clothes. That's the picture there. They're, they've got real spiritual life in them. And Christ says those Christians are worthy of special honour. One day they'll walk with him dressed in pure white. We heard that in the kids' talk. Right? Everyone will see their purity, their holiness, their, their beauty. And perhaps you, you're thinking that, that, maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian, and you're thinking that's exactly what I thought Christianity was about. Right? So it's right here in the Bible. These people are going to receive these glorious robes. They're going to get into heaven because they've been pure and moral and, and holy. They've been better than the rest of us. So if I work really hard, if I'm just good enough, I might get into heaven. But that's not what this is saying. But in Revelation 7, a few chapters later, Revelation 7, verse 14, we see that the people who get into heaven, that people get into heaven rather, are because they've, Naomi said this in the kids' talk, right? Because they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That, that's how. Uh, that's primarily how our robes get made white, right? They're, they're washed clean uh, by Christ's blood shed on the cross. How, how does that work? It's that on the cross, uh, it's like Christ was clothed 
in your sinful robe, in your muddy and soiled robe. And so that by faith, the great exchange happens. You can be clothed in his perfect, his holy, his blameless, his glorious robe. So what we're seeing in in Revelation 3, uh, in this church in Sardis, is Christ saying that the genuine Christians who respond to God's amazing grace shown to them at the cross, those Christians want to live lives that kind of fit with their clothes. They live righteously not to try and earn God's approval, but because they already have God's approval. Because of Christ's work, Christ's what he has done on the cross. They live full of thanks and, and praise for their God, not uh, out of guilt and shame at trying to earn his approval. And Christ says if you persevere in living that way, uh, he'll, never blot you, uh, he'll never blot out your name from the book of life. In fact, he'll acknowledge you before his Father and his angels. Uh, in, uh, in this day and age, uh, all the citizens of a city, uh, would have, uh, be, their names would be written in a registry. And and there'd be a certain person uh, uh, who had that book uh, and the list of names who were a part of that city. But uh, of course, if you are unfaithful to the king of that city, uh, he had the authority to blot your name out of the registry. Uh, So you were no longer acknowledged as a citizen. Uh, So if we fast forward to the end of Revelation, uh, you might remember Revelation 20 to 22, uh, there's another city. And what we're seeing here in Revelation 3, in this letter to the church in Sardis, is that Christ has a registry for that city, a list of names of all the citizens of the city. But there's a really important difference, isn't there? Because your name doesn't get into Christ's registry primarily because you've been faithful to him as your king. It's quite the opposite, isn't it? Your name gets in there because you've admitted you've been unfaithful to him. Because in a great act of mercy and grace, even though you've been unfaithful to Christ, instead of blotting your name out of his book of life, Christ, as it were, Christ the King, writes his name in the book of death. That's what he does. He takes your place. What you deserve. He dies the death that you deserve. And notice that he's crucified on a cross outside the city. So your name can be written in the book of life, the registry of the heavenly city, and you're welcome, you're acknowledged as a citizen of that city. So if you're a Christian, you're already a citizen of God's city. And the message here is live as a citizen. Remain faithful to Christ, your King. Because he says in Luke 12, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge them before the angels of God. We respond to to Christ's amazing act of faithfulness to us by being faithful to him. And one expression of that is acknowledging that that we follow him before others. And Christ says if you do that, one day he'll acknowledge you before his father and before his angels. But he'll say, you know, this one's one of mine. They're, They're a citizen of this city. They're welcome. They're on the list. So the big idea in this letter is really the the importance of kind of cultivating spiritual life in a church. I choose that word cultivating quite deliberately because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul compares the church to a garden. You can look that up later on. Uh, But uh, of course, there's lots of things when you're gardening that you can't control. Uh, The weather, for example, can't control the weather. 
Uh, but a skilled gardener wants to cultivate conditions where life and growth are most likely to happen. That's what gardeners do. And that's our job in the church, particularly the job of leaders in the church. So how do we do this? How do we uh, kind of keep cultivating spiritual life in the church? I think there's lots of stuff in this passage. But but let me say, it's actually about having our hearts and minds constantly renewed uh, by what some people have called movement dynamics. You remember those M's? I know that might sound like kind of a little bit kind of wanky Christian leadership stuff, but those M's. There's something going on spiritually when the movement's kicking off. What are the characteristics of a movement that's genuinely empowered by God's Spirit, that's driven forward by the Gospel? Many of them are in this passage. Right, First, a Gospel movement is driven forward by a compelling vision of Christ. Not the compelling vision of Darabin Presbyterian Church, although that is quite compelling, or the compelling vision of any other organisation, but a compelling vision of Christ. And I'm confident that that's what a spirit-empowered movement always has, because in John 16, Jesus said to his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, and he will glorify me. The Spirit loves Jesus. The Spirit wants to glorify Jesus, put the spotlight on Jesus. And so just like this church in Sardis, the Spirit wants to open our eyes. The the, the church needed a a vision, a, a renewed vision, a compelling vision of the glory of Christ. That's what the Spirit does. And that's the first mark of these movements, a compelling vision of Christ. And if a church, a movement has that kind of vision of Christ, they'll be compelled to pray. Vision and prayer. Not just small prayers, but but kind of Christ-sized prayers. Kingdom-sized prayers. Prayers that show that, that we've got a clear vision of Christ as the one who holds the fullness of God's Spirit. The seven spirits of God, the one who could pour out God's spirit at any time on our church, on our city, in extraordinary ways, accelerating the cause of the gospel. So gospel movements, they're unified around a compelling vision of Christ that that drives people to pray. And third, uh, they have a multiplication of spirit-empowered leaders. Remember those seven stars? I don't know which hands he had these things. We're told that he's got... Uh, kind of stars in one hand and, and the seven spirits of God in the other. Right? But, but what we need, remember that the stars are the leaders, right? So, so what the church in Sardis needs and, and really what we need is for Christ's two hands to come together in, in, a, in a glorious way. We need a multiplication, masses and masses of spirit-empowered leaders, leaders who are genuinely filled with the spirit. And so we pray as Christ calls us to. And we pray to him as the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into his harvest field. And that prayer meeting that gets put up every fortnight, that's one of the things we pray for. And be warned, if you start praying that, it's a very dangerous prayer to pray because you'll probably be the answer to your own prayer. Like in the context of, of Jesus calling his disciples to pray for that, in the very next verse, he sends them out. He says, go, I'm sending you out. So we have to pray, uh, but if we pray, we must be prepared to go. And that leads to the final characteristic of these gospel movements. 
which is that people are so captured by their vision of Christ that they give themselves with great sacrifice to the mission of Christ. Uh, In Acts 1 verse 8, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right, so, so we receive God's Spirit as disciples of Jesus uh, to bear witness to him. Well, that's not the only reason, but that's one of the main reasons, right? To, to give us power uh, for the mission, to declare the good news of Christ's kingdom to the ends of the earth. So I guess today I'm, I'm calling us to pray. I pray that uh, we would be a church that... Is, is kind of able to, to cultivate those movement dynamics. I pray that we'd be unified uh, around a compelling vision of Christ. Not, not our catchy vision statement. I mean, I think it's good. But it's more important that people see Christ clearly. Uh, we need a vision of Christ that drives us to our knees in prayer, to pray big prayers. Prayers for a multiplication of, of masses of leaders. We need lots more evangelists and pastors and church planters and chaplains. We need lots and lots and lots of leaders. And not just leaders to kind of prop up our ministries, but leaders to take the gospel to our city and to the nations, to be filled with the Spirit and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think if we're doing these things under God, I guess all this is coming from me wanting our church to avoid that life cycle. Maybe at the moment there's some signs that we're a part of a movement, there's some momentum growing. We're in the phase where we've got got to have some machinery. Church is big enough where we have to organise things. So we need to keep our eyes focused on our Lord Jesus Christ. We we don't want to become a not-so-well-oiled machine or, or a museum where those who've been around for a few years start reminiscing about the good old days when we first started the church. Wasn't that amazing? I knew everyone's name. We've got to press forward. More and more people need to hear about Jesus. We don't want to become a machine, a, a museum, or certainly not a morgue like this church in Sardis. So let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, uh, it's really confronting to read uh, of a church that... Uh, their life was really ebbing away, uh, really a dead church. Lord God, uh, we pray for ourselves as individuals, that we'd be mindful of uh, spiritual deadness in our own hearts, sin that needs to be confessed perhaps, a lack of willingness to, to fan into flame gifts of the Spirit, and Lord, we pray that as a church, that uh, as we grow, that we would keep some of these dynamics of a movement, that our church would be alive and dynamic and purposeful. Uh, we know we have to be organised, uh, but we want to be a well-oiled machine that doesn't grind to a halt and become a museum and certainly a morgue. Uh, please, Lord Jesus, uh, we see you as the one who holds the seven spirits of God, the, the fullness of God's spirit. We pray you would keep pouring your spirit onto our church, uh, that we would keep... Uh, being filled with the Spirit and and going out into the world, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. For your glory we pray. Amen.